This morning we're continuing our study in 2 Timothy. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in verses 8 through 11. And there's a lot in 8 through 11. We could do uh, sermons on, on just kind of the, the, the thematic elements inside each of these, but we're going to seek to follow our normal pattern and just walk through these. And I know that it will be as challenging for you to employ and apply in your lives as it was for me in my study this week, as I begin to ask myself questions that resulted from the study of this text. Let me read these three verses, and then we'll walk through them together. Paul writes to Timothy, and starting off in verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. You know, as I begin to study through this and 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 and, and really think, why was this included? Why did he set down to write these things? Paul, as he's facing the end of his life, the end of his ministry, why did he think it was so vitally important that Timothy receive these words. And, you know, as we talked about last week, part of it has to do with his ability and his desire to encourage Timothy in all things. He wants to, to work to build up this young man who's really struggling uh, there in Ephesus, who's having a difficult time. And a lot of that stems from the difficult personalities that he's got in that church. I mean, he loves those people, but man, the, the people there in Ephesus, they were difficult to pastor. They were difficult to shepherd. But Paul doesn't want Timothy to have a shallow faith. He wants him to have a faith that takes root. He wants him to have a a rooted, deep faith that affects every facet of his life. You know, 2,000 years later, it's just as difficult for us. Christianity has flourished Since Paul wrote to Timothy, it has known incredible expansion. It has grown, I mean, just tremendously. But in that, we find various strands that have popped up and and, and different takes on the gospel and different understandings of of how these things are to come together. And we found some, and and we're going to address this more in coming weeks, we found some who seek to make the gospel more palatable. They make it taste better. They make it easier to swallow, to digest, to adapt into your lives. They seek to you know, adapt the gospel to fit into our lives instead of our lives having to be changed because of the mandates of the gospel. And so we hear messages from people, that, and, and this is one of my favorites when Valerie and I got ready to go to the mission field. They'd say, you know, the safest place for you is in the middle of God's will. I say, that's fantastic. That's great news. And Valerie and I are at training 
we're awaiting our deployment, and, and we are in the middle of, of a special training week that, that really deals with the subject of the persecuted church. And it deals with, you know, what do you do if somebody kidnaps you? And you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound all that great. You know, rethink all the decisions I've made that led to my kidnapping. You know, what do you do if somebody kills one of your children? What do you do if somebody holds a gun to your head? What do you do in all these scenarios? So we're in the middle of all that training. And this thought keeps echoing back in my mind where people said, man, the safest place for you is in the center of God's will. We make it all the way to the end of the week and we get a phone call. And there was a worker in Central Asia who was in the center of God's will. She was working on a part of a platform and, and, and working as a nurse. And she wasn't seeking to overthrow government. She wasn't seeking to destabilize anything. By all appearances, she was just a, a good person ministering to people in need, in the center of God's will. And they took her, and they took her driver, and they shot them both. See, if you live your life with the understanding that the safest place for you to be in the, is in the center of God's will, and then things like that happen, causes you to do one of two things. Either to realize that all of that philosophy is bunk. Or maybe it causes you to look at, at the gospel and say, this is just, it's, it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. Because all these other things start to come to your mind, and you say, but I've, but I've always heard that, that God won't give you more than you can stand. He won't give you more than you can bear. It's just not true. God will absolutely allow you to be in certain situations that are far more than you can stand, or way beyond what you can bear. And that's what we're going to look at today. And that's why Paul wrote Timothy. And that's why we need to know this. And that's why we need to apply this to our lives. Let's look at it together. Paul starts off, and the first thing he says is, don't be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, nor me, his prisoner. Now, this is kind of strange for us, and, and some of us might be trying to move that into our lives, but let's just think about it from the context of, of when Paul wrote Timothy, and he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Why might Timothy be caused, why might Timothy be led to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? Well, it is scandalous. We have watered down, we've had 2,000 years of separation between us and the gospel, but for Timothy to walk into somebody's house and, and say, let me, let me tell you how a, a peasant from Nowheresville died on, in the most horrible way possible, was executed with the most vile uh, mechanism to date, and how it can radically change your life. It's scandalous. It, it, it sounds insane, does it not? I mean, it sounds absolutely crazy that this man was executed for being one who was seeking, at least in, in, in their minds, to destabilize the Roman Empire. 
And Timothy was going to people and saying, look, let me tell you this message that could change your life. It could radically alter everything, and it makes sense of the universe. It makes sense of creation. It tells us where we're going. It advises into his story and all of these things. And Timothy would likely be ridiculed almost every time he uttered this message. And so Paul writes him and says, Timothy. And he's reminding him of the words that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is good news to those that God is saving. And he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Man, you and I, hopefully you, you find yourself not struggling with being ashamed of the gospel. But think over the conversations you have with, with coworkers, with family. And, and, and do this for me. Think over those times when there's been a clear window to talk about Jesus. Maybe you felt the churning in your stomach and, 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 and this thing that says, tell them, tell them about Jesus. And, and you said, maybe I'll just talk about the weather instead because that's a whole lot less awkward. Matt, I don't talk about politics, I don't talk about religion, and I don't talk about the way that women cut their hair. I just don't do it. I don't guess it waits. I don't do any of this stuff. You see, when we engage in that behavior, we are tacitly admitting that we are ashamed of the gospel. We would rather not face any type of uncomfortableness. We'd rather not jeopardize any friendship. And instead, we are willing to put the gospel back here in our lives. And instead, the gospel should be what we are. It should be the most bold proclamation of every facet and attribute of our lives. There should be none greater. Paul encourages Timothy in that. Now look at what Paul says of himself. Paul says, look, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. But it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't write a prisoner of the Roman Empire. What does Paul write there? Look at this. He says, nor me, his prisoner. You'll remember that as Paul began this, he said that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul understands that everything that is happening in his life isn't some cosmic accident. He's not suffering in prison on accident. It hasn't escaped the wisdom and the omniscience of God that Paul is suffering in a prison. Paul recognizes his his service to God even in a Roman prison cell. Man, How much more then should we see our service in our jobs, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our social clubs? Whether you're a member of the Kiwanis, whether you're a member of any other assorted group, everything you do, you recognize that you are his first. Whether you're a a day trader, a truck driver, an electrician, a, a mother, or unemployed, or just a student, you recognize that you are his first. And it shapes everything. It shapes absolutely everything. What Paul does next, though, and I would say that if Timothy wasn't ready for this next bit, if he was standing, it likely caused him to sit down. And, and this is really where I've been struggling all week. 
See, Paul writes him in this next deal, and he's not offering a gentle suggestion. He's not saying, you know, maybe you, you should do this. He offers him a command in the second half of 8, and he says, but share in the suffering for the gospel. Share in the suffering for the gospel. You know, this word, suffer, as it comes together, we see that it is together under bad things. Now, maybe you, you translate suffer a little bit differently. You say, you know, share in the discomfort for the gospel. And then you think these pews aren't especially soft. I am discomfortable. I am uncomfortable for the gospel. But Paul looks at Timothy, and he is moving in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me demonstrate that for you. Let me demonstrate that for you. Let's look at a few passages together. If you flip over to, let's look at Jesus' teaching first. I don't have these in any particular order. Let's look at Matthew 5, the famous Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Jesus starts off in verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verse 10, he caps it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And this is what he charges them with. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christianity has got zip to do with life enhancement. And if that's why you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus so your life will be enhanced, so you'll have a better relationship with your spouse, so your children will look up to you, so your business will flourish, because you like Christianity's accounting principles that say 10% goes to God and I get to keep the other part. If you like all of those things, that's fantastic, but it has zip to do with the gospel. He calls us to suffer. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount wasn't seeking to grow a large following. He said, look, this is difficult. But when people persecute you, when they tear you down because of your stand on the gospel, you are living in line with God. You are living in line with the pattern that Jesus sets for us. Jesus in the upper room wanted the disciples, he wanted them to be firm in this. He wanted them to understand this and, and to be ready for when the world turned against them. And so he said this to them in John 15, 18 through 20. He said, if the world hates you, that's a difficult line. Let's, 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 let's read that. Let's read that. Everybody look down. He says, if the world hates you, doesn't write if you're not popular. 
doesn't say, look, if, if, if you just have no friends, he said, if the world hates you, if it wants bad things for you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus gives us a really clear understanding that one of the marks of true Christianity is present persecution. One of the marks of true faith is present suffering. Let's see how, how they responded to it after Jesus' resurrection, after his departure. Remember that some of the disciples began to preach, then began to testify about Jesus. And they did this in front of those who were sure to be angry about the message. They did it in front of Jewish people. They did it in front of the high priest. And they were taken and they were imprisoned. And we read these words in Acts chapter 5 and starting at verse 40. It said, and when they had called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They pulled the apostles in and they said, look, you guys have been speaking about Jesus. You've got to cut it out just to drive this point home. We're going to beat on you just a little bit. Not so much that you can't walk, but enough that you remember this lesson. We're going to drive it home. How did the disciples, how did the apostles respond? Verse 41, it says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. When they encountered suffering, they didn't recall all these platitudes that Jesus had, had given them. They didn't recall words that he'd said, look, it's going to go well for you in the land. You're, you're just going to enjoy life. I'm here for, for you. I'm here for your life enhancement. They remembered his words when he told them they hated me. They're going to hate you too. To be a follower, to be a disciple of Jesus is to welcome the suffering that comes with it. So when he received this word, when Timothy received this word from Paul, he remembered the suffering marks on Paul's body. How his body had on it the imprint of the suffering for Jesus. The marks of the whips, the marks from the chains. A body that was ravaged by being in full submission to the gospel. But look at the encouragement Paul gives him. It would have been insane for Paul to write Timothy and say, join me in suffering. Come on down to Prisonville and leave it at that. But look how he ends that. He says, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God's not calling us to something that's absolutely impossible. For us, certainly. Man, we, we, we don't like suffering. It's why we have Advil, ibuprofen, Bear, Tylenol, 
Tylenol PM, Tylenol AM, Tylenol middle M. I mean, it's why we have all of these things because we don't like suffering. I don't like the way my knee feels when it aches when I walk up these tiny, tiny steps. We're working on the steps, by the way. Or Jay is. When I say we, I use that in a loose sense. Very, very loose. They will work. But when it comes to the gospel, we recognize that the suffering that we endure for the gospel, the persecution you might endure for the gospel, is never going to be accomplished by yourself. It is only accomplished by the power of God. It is only accomplished by the power of God. Now Paul moves in verse 9 to describe exactly who this God is. He says, but this power of God stems from the God, verse 9, who saved us. He says he is the God who saved us. He's the God that ransomed us. He's the God that called us out of darkness. We were lost. We were slaves to sin. Maybe some of us have forgotten that. Maybe some of us, when we think about our, our salvation story, it's been so long ago for us that we forget that we were completely lost and mired in sin, that we were stuck there. But God reached in and he rescued us. He pulled us out of sin. He pulled us out of death. He, he pulled it back. The sting of death he removed for us. It is this God who saved us. It is this God who has called us to a holy calling. See, God doesn't call us into a life of following him so that we can be happy. Instead, he calls us into a life of submission and says, find your happiness and find your joy in me. Find your happiness and find your joy in serving me. Serving God. Look at what Paul writes. Paul recognized that there were those who were tempted at pride on the part of even their salvation. They were tempted to think that, that God saved them because of what a great person they were, because of all the good things that they were capable of doing. But he says he didn't save us because of our works. It's not that God looked down and he saw Jason or Charles or, or, or Brad or Johnny and, and said, man, these guys are getting it done. They are fantastic. If I had five more of them, we could set Greenville on fire. I'm going to save them before somebody else does it. It's not that God looked down and said, Trey is great, but you know, Doug, we can work on him. Maybe I'll save him. Maybe I'll bring him into salvation. Maybe I'll bring Ben. Maybe I'll bring Patty. Maybe I'll bring these other people into salvation just to, you know, even it out a little bit. God moves in salvation and calls us to a holy calling, not because of our work. But we see that it is instead because of his own purpose and grace. He does it. Because of his purpose, because of his plan, and because of his grace. Because of who he is. But look at where these are located. And look how long they have been in place. He says that his purpose and his grace that they were given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This communicates a couple of things to us. One, it tells us that Christ is pre-existent. Christ exists prior to God moving in a tremendous display of creative endeavor. That before God spoke the world into existence, before he did all of these things, that Christ was the pre-existent one. 
that he existed in all those times ago, and that look what God did, even before he moved in creation, even before he did that, his plan and his grace were firmly in Christ. They're in Christ. They're not in us. We didn't exist yet. Nothing existed. God hadn't spoken life into the world. He hadn't spoken for creation. But even in that time, he moved. And in Christ, he placed his purpose. And in Christ, he placed his grace. Think about that. Before anything came to be, There was nothing but darkness in God. And in Christ, God put all of his plan, his purpose, and his grace. You think God has big plans for your salvation? You think God has something much more grand in store for you than you doing well in business, than you being a good father, a good mother, a good friend? Friends, God's purpose and plan for you is founded before the foundations of the world. God's purpose and plan for you and your family and for all those who would submit themselves to him was founded before he moved in creation. That should cause all of us to step back. It should drive all of us for a mass revisiting for every decision we're making realizing that God had moved before even creation to establish plans for each of us. And look at verse 10. Paul says, look, this is what God has done in eternity past, Timothy. But look what he's done now. His purpose and his grace have now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul wants Timothy and he wants us to know that we find our purpose and that we find the grace of God not in the way that we live but in the way that Jesus lived in our unification with him and our joining with him and our submission to God and him extracting us from a life of sin, a life that is marred by death, a life which only leads to death. And it is this Christ who abolished death. He abolished death. What a tremendous display of power. That Jesus brought an end to the reign of death. That Jesus, in his atoning sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, brought an end to an enslavement of sin. He says to death, No more! No longer shall you hold sway! He pronounces an end to death. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We recognize that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had life. They had immortality. That they recognized these things existed. But when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death had to enter. They couldn't continue to live in this Edenic state. They couldn't continue to have communion in relation with God in the way they had had it before. They couldn't have it that way. So he kicked them out of the garden. And we've suffered the ravages and the penalty of sin ever since. But in the coming of Christ, he stops death dead in its tracks. 
He stops the effects of death. And in salvation, he, awaken, he awakens us all to the existence of immortality. He offers to all of us the possibility of immortality. He offers to all of us life and life abundantly. Forgiveness. Forgiveness from all of the sins and the past mistakes. Forgiveness for the misgivings. Forgiveness for those things that we've done on purpose. Forgiveness for those things we've done on accident. Forgiveness for those things that we did this morning. Forgiveness for those things we'll do tomorrow. That's what Jesus offers us through the gospel. And then Paul makes this declaration, and this is how he concludes it in verse 11. He says, this is the marker of my life. The gospel. And it's this gospel in which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Paul looks at, the, at the, the shape of his life. He looks at the plan of God. He says, this is what God wants in salvation for me. That God appointed him to be a preacher, a herald, one who proclaims the good news. That God, in moving to save Paul, made him an apostle, one who carries, who is sent out with that message. And that God in salvation towards Paul makes him a teacher. One who works with others to bring them into right understanding and right knowledge of the word of God. He is rightly dividing the word of God and passing it on to others so that they might enter into the same endeavor. When you contemplate the plan and the purpose of God in your life. What has he appointed you to? When Paul looked at the course of his life, when he looked at all those things that God had done, and you'll remember that when Paul was saved, one of the things that was said of him, Jesus testifies, and he said, I will show him how much he will suffer for the gospel. Paul's life was marked by the suffering for the gospel. When we contrast our lives with Paul's, the question returns to us. What has he called you to? What has he appointed you to? And how are you responding to him? Let me pray for us.